This morning, I was going to talk about the Lordship box. We're going to discuss this one piece, and it's called being a fool for Christ. Do y'all remember that verse? Fools for Christ. First Corinthians 4.10 is when Paul talks about the fact that we are fools for Christ's sake. Now, some people have never entered into the fool's category. They've never ever had anything where they could say, okay, I know what this is talking about. I've gone there. I've done that. I was thinking about it because when I was teaching the Lordship Levels a few months back, I left this one out. I want to open this concept up to us today to talk about what it looks like to have this said about us that we actually have to hit that point to say, okay, if that's what it takes, I'll be a fool for you. When this happened to me, it was a revelation. Like my junior year in high school, it was during the summer, and I realized, well, I've been a fool for myself. And I told the Lord, I'm going to change it. I'm going to be a fool for you. And I was thinking, you know what? I've been embarrassed. It's embarrassing to talk about you. I've been shy. I can't hardly make myself, you know, speak up in public. And I thought, you know, that's pretty foolish when you think about it. So I said, no more shyness, no more embarrassment. I told the Lord, I said, I feel like a fool. So I'm going to tell you, I'm going to quit being a fool for me, and I'm going to be bold now. From now on, I said, I'll be a fool for you, and I'm going to quit being a fool for myself. And I felt myself make that decision. So I think, personally, you can't just have spotted times in your life where you have this thing where you say, okay, I'm going to be a fool for the Lord. I think it's a decision you make and say, okay, Lord, I'm willing to go there. It's worth it to me to be a fool for you. I think in life, if you'll look at life more as having some tests to it, the Lord will test you. But I guess coming from a father and all the men in our family, they were constantly testing us. And they told me, if I tease you, it's because I love you. And so I learned that not everything is how it feels towards you, that you're actually being tested. So I would invite you to open up your heart to this and say, okay, Lord, I'm going to allow you to test me in this. I'm going to allow myself to be stretched. Because look at yourself. Do you really want to remain the way you are? I mean, a year from now, do you want to say, I'm going to be exactly how I am right now? I'm going to be just my old self. I mean, I had to look at myself and say, I don't like the results I'm getting. I don't like what I look like to myself. In fact, I'm embarrassing myself. And I thought, you know, shy people, they're embarrassing themselves. You know, I took that shyness and I said, you know, shyness is a form of pride. I'm done with it. I'm rid of it. And so that junior year, it was absolutely something that changed inside of me. Let's talk about it. Are you willing to pass the full test or pass the foolishness test? Are you willing to say, okay, Lord, I'll go there with you? Because I'm going to say the kingdom of God is so different than the world It makes it look like that literally we don't belong in the world sometimes of how we have to act in order to please the Lord, in order to do what he's telling us to do. So 2 Kings 5 is where I would draw the line to test your pride. So in 2 Kings 5, 10, you hear about a guy and he got leprosy. And when he came down with leprosy, he just was like, okay, this is the death sentence. There's some diseases we know now that if you come down with them, you're just like, life as I know it's over. Well, leprosy was that disease for them back then. And can you imagine, you're in Syria, you're very high up in the government. In fact, you're second to the highest in command of the country. But you've got a servant girl. And the servant girl is, she's cleaning and she's happy and, and she's just going away. And she finds out you have leprosy and everyone else is devastated by the report, but not her. The little servant girl tells you, oh, back where I come from, there's a cure for it. And so you think, I wonder if she's touched in the head. You wonder about your servant girl. Does she know what she's talking about? And she goes, there's a cure for it. And he asks her, what is the cure? And and she goes, we have a man of God, and he'll do something over you, and you'll be well. Well, she must have been convincing enough, or he was desperate enough, or the two ideals met each other. But he decides, I'm going to go to another country that I don't have an address for where this guy lives. And I'm going to find the guy, and I'm going to try to 
talk him into healing me. And so he loads up all his camels. He puts all kinds of provisions on it, all different types of things that will entice this guy. Because you got to realize these countries are enemies. It's not like you're going into a friendly neighborhood. These countries are constantly at war with each other. And so on the word of a servant girl, he goes. Now, if this trip doesn't turn out for him, don't you feel like he'll be a fool? You know there's people telling him, you're crazy for even thinking about going. Like, who are you? Like, this is not faith. This is stupidity. This is just you thinking that she knows what she's talking about. Well, he gets there in 2 Kings, and he goes to the king of the country. He thought, well, I'll start at the top. I've got the credentials, so he goes to the king. And the king gets real upset, and he goes, who do you think I am? Are you trying to start a war with us? Is that what you're doing, trying to intimidate me? Now, that shows you the difference when your leadership doesn't know God. They're like, are you just trying to start a war? Are you just trying to start trouble with me? Well, Elisha hears about it. He sends word to the king, and he says, tell him that there's a man of God in this country. Now, that might be the first step to you taking that boldness that I'm talking about. Tell him there's a man of God here. Tell him if he has a problem, I have an answer. So he actually makes it where the guy knows he's the right one. So the guy takes all of his stuff, all of his entourage, and he goes to where this prophet is. And guess what the prophet does to him? The Syrian shows up. He shows up outside the door of the guy's house, and the prophet won't even bother to go to the door. So here's the official in all his pomp and glory, all his prominence, covered in leprosy, of course. The prophet won't go to the door. He sends his servant to him. Well, this guy's getting used to servants these days. I mean, the, first of all, he's on a mission because of a servant. And then he has a servant greeting him at the door. It's at this point, I want you to notice, there are times when things don't go how you think they should go. There's things that you take for granted. You think because of who you are, someone ought to meet you. But God doesn't think on your terms. He doesn't think the way that you think. So you've got to pass the first test. And let me tell you a little secret about someone that's a prophet or someone that has a prophetic gift on them. They mess with you. They don't try to entice you. They don't try to make you like them. Sometimes I wonder if they have a different motive in mind. But literally, a prophetic sort of person is not there to please you. And you must keep that in mind. It's always a test. But remember, who has the problem? Don't transfer and think that guy has the problem. You've got to think in terms of yourself because a prophet least tries to please you and most tries to please God. And it's us that has it reversed where we're most trying to please people and least thinking about what God wants on it. When the guy asks, what do I do? The prophet has already not come to the door, but he insults him at a level you just can't imagine. And he tells him, go dip in a river. This particular river, the Jordan River, dip into it seven times and you'll be healed. It was too much. Naaman had heard it all now. He was like, we've got good rivers in my country. We don't have to go to this country. Just humiliate ourselves. Aren't there better rivers in Syria where I'm from? There's foolishness in what God will tell you to do. And you'll never get to where you want to go with the Lord without passing the foolishness test. Like to go down in a river, this is not how the guy pictured his healing. And when we don't do it the way that God has intended for our healing to go, sometimes that's why we're not getting healed. We're not getting healed because we aren't following what the Lord's inviting us to do. We're always saying, well, why will God not heal? But we have our ways of thinking that God should do it. It's not how he pictured that God would do it. A lot of times the reason we get in our messes is because we never considered God in the first place. So Naaman's blowing out. He's had it. He's mad. He feels like it's an embarrassment anyway. He's gone to the king. Now he's been sent down to this guy who's insulting him. He just doesn't see that it's worth it. But he had a friend on this trip. He had a servant. He had a friend. He had, he had someone on this trip. And this guy gives him some good advice. This is how I picture it. That grabs him by the collar and he starts shaking him. And the best thing you can have when you're in pride is someone who loves you enough to shake some sense into you. 
And the guy shakes him. And he says to him, have you come this far and you're not going to do it? Why would you come to this point? Why would you break the deal at this point? If this is all you've got to do, why not make this easy? And the guy begins to shake some sense. And did you know there are times in your life that it's the difference in your life how it's going to turn out based on one person having enough courage to shake some sense into you to get you to listen? Who's that person that shakes you? Who's that person that grabs you by the collar? They're irritating. They're that kind of a person to you. But that's exactly what happens at this point. And you look at the guy and he thinks, look at my clothing. Now, in our day and time, we'd say, look at my uniform. I'm high in the military. Or maybe in that day and time, look at these robes I have. The guy's not even coming out to look. The king who might have been impressed by your robes says he has no power and thinks you're up to something. It has to push our pride. But now you've got to get in dirty water. You've got to do the dirty water test. And that's what I call it inside, is that sometimes it has to push our pride into dirty water. And it's in the dirty water that you'll feel yourself getting cleansed. You'll feel things coming off your life that you could never believe. You know, you see the Lordship in this, that it takes seven times. It's not that you go down once and you immediately have it. You see the seven levels of lordship here. He dips. He comes up. He dips again. Second time. He comes up. He dips. He comes up. He dips down in the water. He comes up. He dips in the water. He comes up. He dips again. He comes up. On the seventh time, he dips. And he comes up and his skin's like a baby. And that's what takes place inside of us. It's a process. It's something that you don't get there overnight. You can't demand your way into the Lord. You have to go through this process. Now, I want to ask you a question about this story. Naaman is such a converted guy now. I mean, it's changed something in him. He wants to take a souvenir home. What does he want to take back home with him? He asks some theological questions. He says, I'm in a rough place because, you know, the guy that I take care of, he leans on me and I have to take him some places I don't really want to have to go with him. Is that going to be okay? So now Elisha's talking to him. He's giving him some advice. And Naaman is so excited. He says, I've got to take something back. Do you know what he took back with him? It's so ironic. When I read this, I think about the fact that this is what the guy chose to take back. Of everything he could take back. I mean, look what he's brought. He's brought uh, precious metals. He's brought changes of clothes. He's brought all kinds of great stuff. But what does he want in return? Do you remember? Dirt. dirt. Can I have two bags of dirt? So that I can pour the dirt on the ground and I can worship God on the dirt. Isn't that ironic to think? It's too dirty. Our rivers in Syria are beautiful. They're clean. They look like the water that they put at Six Flags. I mean, they, they've got that. It's blue water. But not the Jordan. Why the dirt? And there's something about it that when your pride goes through this test, when you decide I'm going to be the foolishness of God, you're like, give me two bags full. I'll take it with me. I will purposely lay my pride down for you, Lord. God can't have us in the pride world. The pride won't work with the Lord. And only God knows if it's pride standing between you and him. Everyone tended to take this idea of pride and thinking, oh, it's that haughty person that, you know, doesn't have time for you. But when I realized my insecurity was standing as pride, I didn't want that between me and God. I didn't want something where he could lay his finger on it and say, this isn't right. Pride. That's the first test. The second test, I want you to look at this. I don't know that I would say this is a test. I would say this is a, are you willing to go here? Like we love the miracles of this, but I want you to think about 1 Kings 17, 21. And it's a story of another lady who her son dies. And when you think about 
God having miraculous power, that God does things that only he could do, that he shows up and he changes someone's situation around, that the worst thing that you can think of is death on someone that you love. And yet God shows even in the Old Testament that death was under their feet. Like they literally could reach God and change a situation when there is no human hope at the point of death. But we look at this and we say, did Elijah raise the dead? Yes, he did. But what we don't think about is that this is an early shadow of called being a fool for Christ. This is an early version of this. This is before the New Testament version. You know the situation. You can go back and read it, all the things that took place when this kid had died. But when the kid was brought to him, what did Elijah do? How did he handle this? In 1 Kings 17, 21, it says, Then Elijah, he stretched himself over the child, and he cried out to the Lord, O Lord, please let this boy's life return to him. Have you ever thought about a dead body and that what you do would stretch yourself over him? This isn't even his son. But he takes the boy and he lays on top of him. And I would give you some advice. You better raise them because if you don't, you're a fool. But if you do raise them, no one cares how you did it. <laughs> Have you ever read about Smith Wigglesworth and some of the things he did? I just flat don't want to talk about it. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, he was a guy from England and the spirit and the power of God was on him. But to think here that he would stretch himself over the child, not once, not twice, but three times. Please let this boy's life return to him. Verse 22, And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the child's life returned to him, and he lived. Then Elijah took the child, and he brought him down from the upper room of the house, and he gave him to the mother. And he said, Oh, look, your son's alive. You see this as a precursor. It's a foreshadowing of Christ, the resurrection, that the power to raise the dead. But I want you to see the passageway that you go through from which it comes. You have to have the passageway of being that person who says, whatever you tell me to do, Lord, I'll do it. Whatever you tell me to do. You know, there's a similar story, and it's done by Elijah's servant, Elisha. Elisha's is an odd story. It's very similar, but it has two parts to it. And so in Elisha's story, a similar thing has happened is this kid had died. And so when the mom comes, wraps herself around Elisha's feet, Elisha comes up with this idea that this could be something my servant handles for me. Elisha enjoyed sending the servant. We'll pick up the story there in 2 Kings 4.29. So Elisha said to Gehazi, his servant, Tie up your garment, take your staff in your hand, and go. And if you meet anyone, don't greet them. And if anyone greets you, don't bother to answer them. So don't greet them. If anyone greets you, don't answer them. Then lay my staff on the boy's face. The mother, though, of the boy says, As surely as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So Gehazi goes to where she's laid the boy. She's laid the boy on Elisha's bed, and she's taken off. But the mother stays with the prophet. She doesn't stay with the dead son. She has come and got the prophet. He sends a servant, but the mom won't go. And so in verse 30, And the mother of the boy said, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I'm not leaving you. So he got up and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead of them. And he did what he was told. He laid the staff on the boy's face, but there was no sound or response. So he went back to meet Elisha, and he told him, it didn't work. The boy didn't wake up. And this is where it really turns with the conflict. It's verse 32. So Elisha reaches the house, and there the boy was lying dead on the bed. Now this is where it starts for you. You've tried something. It doesn't work. So you don't say, oh, God's not in it. He's dead and he's lying on the bed. 
He reached the house. Nothing's changed. You've kind of hoped that, well, maybe it's one of those, well, as you go, he'll be healed. Like after Gehazi left, then maybe something will take place and the boy's condition will have changed. But no, he's good and dead. He's even deader. You know, in the world of raising the dead, it's, are they dead? Are they dead dead? Are they good and dead? Are they four days dead? I mean, it is a perspective on it. If you talk to missionaries, they'll tell you how dead they were. (laughs) I found dead to be dead. But you see, Jesus made a difference. When he raises Lazarus and how dead dead is. Well, this guy's dead, dead, dead. And so he went in, verse 33, and he closed the door behind him. And it was just the two of them. What happens in that room? He begins to pray, praise the Lord. And then Elisha got on the bed and he lay on the boy. And this gives you how he did it. To have the door closed and shut, he told someone what he did here. And he lays on the bed and he lays on the boy. And he's mouth to mouth, eye to eye, hand to hand, as he stretched himself over him. I mean, you could say he put his whole self into this. (laughs) but you don't have any power in yourself you can lay yourself on everything dead you can find and nothing will change you can't raise a fly you don't have power there's no human combustion that takes place no great love in your heart i have such compassion it won't get you anywhere it's the power of the lord some people think they can do it apart from the lord you can't so he stretched himself on him what's interesting he's prayed He stretched himself on him, and the boy began to turn warm. So this tells you he was cold and dead, but he begins to warm up. I don't know if you've ever seen that video of the guy in Africa that he was two days dead. His wife wasn't having it. She got to thinking about the 18 churches that he had, and she wasn't going to pastor them. And the more she laid in bed, the madder she got at him dying. So she went and got him out of the morgue. It's all on film. And they take him to a meeting, and she can't get the body down to the meeting, and everybody's a little upset with her because he's stiff. And so she takes him to the basement, and they're worshiping. And it happened just like this. Parts of him started warming up, and you're watching it on film. You remember, I was analytical. I wanted to see, because where I've never heard of anyone raising someone is embalmed. And this guy had one shot of embalming fluid. That's why I was interested in the video. (laughs) He went completely, but he had a shot. And watching him come back, and he spoke the Queen's English, the guy in Africa, he was like, my foul, my foul, because he had been on a tour with an angel, and he was taking notes. We would call it on a clipboard. I've got it if y'all want to see it. One shot in. But his body became warm, and Elisha turned away, and he paced back and forth across the room. So he didn't just keep doing more of what he was doing. He starts praying again. I've gotten to this point. So he prays again. And then he stretches himself over the boy again. And on this stretch, on this one, the boy sneezes seven times and opens his eyes. You wonder if Elisha was going one, two, three. There is nothing like someone dead sneezing. It's a good sign. (laughs) You know, I was thinking, my dad... He would come up with these ideas. And I'd always kid him. I said, Dad, that this stuff happened back then. But for some reason that you started reading your Bible and getting all excited about it, you think you can do what the Bible says. So my dad said, I've had a dream or something on this one. And he says, I want you to come down to ICU. Marlene's dead. And he said, it's a very tragic story. She's Technically, she's been dead <laughs> For two days in ICU, but they're keeping her plugged in and keeping her body on the support system until her family gets there, and together they want to unplug her. But he said she flatlined. And Dad said, I'm going to go pray for her. You come. I was always like, oh, my dad. He does these things. He believes these things, and he wants me to go. (laughs) So I go to ICU, and you got to be very quiet. Marlene's laying there. She's flatlined. She's been flatlined. She's about to be unplugged. My dad does what he felt like the Lord told him to do. And he said, in the name of Jesus, I command death to leave her. And I command life to come back into her. Well, I'm on my knees. I'm not on my knees because I'm praying. I'm on my knees because I see you as like the library. 
<laughs> and when people are looking around for who just said that, I want them to see my dad and not me. <laughs> I have taken a holy position. Not that I like looking at dead bodies. And Marlene meant something to me. She was the college cook. She cooked for us every week. I mean, you can't let a good cook die. I mean, I had a stake in this thing. I mean, cooks have some uh, clout that I'm going to go take care and pray for a cook. So when I'm on my knees and my dad does this, and I'm looking straight at the body, I see something. She swallows. So my dad leaves. He doesn't see it. He leaves. He's done what God's told him to. And I told him, Dad, when people are breaking dead, do they involuntarily swallow? My dad's a genius. He said, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) That weekend, Marlene throws her arms around me and she whispers in my ear, I know what y'all did. We were going through a split. Her husband was on the other side. She couldn't stay with me. I'd eaten my last meal with her, but she came back. Do brain dead people swallow? I don't know. I never did find out all the details, but when she was there, she was dead. Same with that guy in Africa. You know, this is kind of like the David Hogan style. Smith Wigglesworth, David Hogan, pick. But they've given up a long time ago of caring what people think. But they also get results no one else gets. They know God in a way. It's not a show. You can make a fool of yourself here pretty quick, and it's a permanent fool. If God's not with you, it doesn't work well. So Elisha summons Gehazi. He calls the Shumanite woman. Then Elisha said, pick up your son. She came in. She fell at his feet. She bowed to the ground. And then she picked up her son and went out. I think that's important to see it. It's saying he told her, pick up your son. But she didn't. She fell at his feet. She bowed to the ground. And then she got her son. Fools. I read these scriptures to think if they could do that, then surely, Lord, I can obey you when you tell me to speak to someone I don't want to speak to. I remember my cousin, Julie. She fell off a horse, and she cracked her head on a post. Her hair, Mom was seeing, was just matted in blood. Her face was swollen beyond recognition. She she didn't look like anything. I remember they were racing the ambulance toward Abilene. I remember my dad being in the car behind, and and he starts commanding. And they said she came back in the ambulance several times after dying. But they get there, and the doctor comes in, and my uncle, who is her dad, is a professional man in the community, and the Lord tells him, you love your daughter? And so the Lord told him, crawl up on her like Elijah Elisha did. They had told him that Even if she did live, she would be in a vegetative state. She'd lost her hearing permanently. She would never be the way she was. You were just going to have someone that you'd have to take care of the rest of your life. My mom and dad watched. And I'm sure the nurses did too because the nurse's window was next to that bed. Of course he wouldn't get the bed around the corner. Of course he gets the bed right by him. And you see a man crawl up on a daughter What are you thinking? What's going on? Are they going to rush in? I don't know, but maybe they sense the holiness of the moment. So he did what what was here. There had been people in that ICU room a lot longer than Julie. And when Julie left seven days later, her mind completely well. They would test her hearing, no loss of hearing. Her head completely back to normal. The crack, the shattering, Julie walked out of there completely intact. The other kids that had been in there were still in there, but not her. And Julie hadn't been outspoken about the Lord. She's my youngest cousin. But you know what she said? I'm sure glad I have a family that believes the Lord. It took all my uncle had. He thought even his degree rested on it. 
But when his daughter was laying there, nothing meant anything to him but her. And I'm not saying you have to do it that way. I don't know. This is your your business on hearing God. That's where I would invite you. Let's spend more time on hearing the Lord because you don't want to get into reasoning at this point. You don't want to feel pressured. You don't want to be a person where you're under a compulsive voice or you're kind of crazy anyway. Remember, when you're a fool for Christ, you've got to have something to lose. Some people are just a fool, so adding Christ on doesn't help anything. <laughs> you kind of need some respect for this to work. <laughs> something to put on the altar. <laughs> kind of like giving everything away. If you don't have anything, you have to be successful to give it away. I mean, you've got to have something to give here. Jesus had a much more gentle approach. You know, the story of the little girl, he took her by the hand. And he says those beautiful words to Letha Kuhn. Little girl, I say to you, arise. My dad always thought there was something to the word arise. He loved it. Come out of obscurity. He should know. I watched him raise enough things from the dead. Arise. But Luke 8 tells you something that you you do have to realize and you have to factor in because I don't know if I think this is any easier what Jesus went through, even though he just would reach out his hand. But it says, meanwhile, everyone was weeping and mourning for the girl, crying, just devastated. There's nothing like that kind of crying. It's that moment when you realize you're not going to see him again on this face of the earth. It's that kind of wailing. But Jesus says, stop weeping. She's not dead, but she's asleep. And you talk about a change of emotion. This is in Luke 8, 53. So they go from wailing to laughing at Jesus. Laughing at him. Just laughing at him. Part of being a fool for Christ is you got to be laughed at. You got to be willing to be scorned. So they laugh at him. Stop weeping. She's asleep. And they laughed at him knowing she was dead. So he says, Stop weeping. She's not dead, but asleep. And they said, No, she's dead. And start laughing at him. You know, I remember this group of people and they'd had a death and it was so terrible. Like everybody was numb. They had gone into shock. It was three days. And I said, let's read John 11 together about Jesus and Lazarus. And when we got to the point where Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. It did this. It changed the emotions in the room. Because they were like, we forgot we were the kind of family that we believe that we have the power that life trumps death. And it's that change. Like, you could feel people come out of shock. Y'all, there's some hope to know that it's not just a promise for the by and by. It's not just in, in John 11 where, where Martha says to Jesus, well, I know in the future, I know in heaven it'll work. I mean, that's where everybody's faith is. In heaven they'll be healed. In heaven, though, they're, they're alive. But nobody ever thinks here. And I'm not saying Jesus didn't raise everyone from the dead. So not every dead person deserves a raising. <laughs> he raised three in his whole ministry. So I'm not trying to put something on you. But I'm just also not trying to take off the table that when Jesus spoke to Martha... He says to her, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection. And then when he raises Lazarus, it's the first time I've seen in the Bible where he does this divine, I told you so, Martha. Did I not tell you, Martha? Didn't I tell you? Like, is she at least acknowledged the Lord that I believe in heaven. And there's a lot of theology where I believe in heaven. Y'all, we can all believe in heaven as long as we don't have to see it. That, 
Who, who, who truly can prove they believe that? This is the full test, y'all. It's do you believe now that he is the resurrection? That's the season we're approaching is I am the resurrection. And not even death is final over life. Not even death is final over him. That is not the final word. Whether it's in the resurrection or now, it is not the final word. Jesus, how he did it. You know, I feel like in some ways I was drug across this line as a kid. But I stood up on my own feet at 17 and decided to walk it myself. Because I look at the way society and life is going, and it seems to be a culture of death. Everybody is walking this dark way. And I love the possibility. I love the fact that Jesus does not make our faith always be something in the future, like it's a carrot on a stick in front of me, the donkey. And it's always swinging towards me, but there's nothing real I can ever get my teeth in. There's nothing real I ever see work. That's what religion feels like to me, that that they perpetually swing this carrot of, in eternity it's going to be okay. But I'm seeing the way of the cross is the way of the fool. The way of the cross is doing things you would never think you could do. If you think you're going to get out of this without losing your pride, you won't. If you think you can be a fool for Christ and keep your pride, it's impossible. If you think you can receive your miracle and not be willing for anything it takes, it isn't how it works. Those that, that you see results on, the David Hogan style of miracles, it's a style of crazy. It really is a deep form of crazy. But what happens is we have this box And we ask ourselves, what's in the box? What lives in this box? Because this is what stands between you and what I'm talking about. In this box is what I won't do for you, God. That's what's in this box. This is the the out-of-the-question box. You're going to have to ask yourself, what lives in that box for you? Your reputation? Your pride? This is completely out of the question. I won't go there, box. God could never ask me to do that. He and I have an understanding. You know, they say this is true. The only prophet that's a good prophet, prophet we like, is a dead prophet. And I would say that was true even with my dad. There was something marginally unsafe about him. He could make your uncomfortable feel uncomfortable. Because of this, because he really believed it, because he didn't have this box, God can never ask me to do this. This is off limits, Lord. It's not that I'm trying to keep my pride intact. I just, Lord, do you understand I have to maintain my respect? No, Lord, I'm not in control. I've surrendered to you. You're the Lord of my life, but there's a limit. There's just some things I won't do. And in that box lives the loss of the miraculous in our life. In this box lives what Naaman almost lost. That it took taking those things off the table. Even if you've got to have a friend grab you by the throat and choke you, you've got to let go of that box if you're going to get your miracle. Because I think it's more gentle by the hand if you're willing to go there. But if you're not, sometimes it takes a little more for you. The crazy, the embarrassing, in a way it doesn't make sense that God would say this. That it's the foolishness of God that confounds the wisest of men. But in a way it makes perfect sense. God, he either is God or he's not. If you read your Bible, I want you to read it in terms of this. You know, I think through, I went through all my stories. I mean, I think just lifting my hands in the beginning was hard. Some of you have not put that on the table of just, I'm going to lift my hands like I mean it. (laughs) 
not the barely lift in case anybody sees me. <laughs> Y'all, it, it hurt. It hurts to lift those hands. It hurts to put them in the air. Isn't that ridiculous? Yes. I'm talking about sneezing seven times. You know, I told you in the country before we were in a communist country and we had 200 people and we all were packed with Bibles and I knew tonight I get to see the inside of a communist jail cell. I hope my Texas friends come and bust me out of jail because I'm going there tonight. We all have Bibles on us loaded to the hilt. I have more Bibles than everyone else. I have cotton balls over my Bibles. And I was asking the Lord about it. And now that I'm trying to smuggle and there's no way past this inspection because they're ripping the linings out of our luggage. And everybody was up in line and we just would get up there and we'd back out of line. We couldn't make ourselves go through 200 of us. And the Lord said to me, sing. Y'all, if I sang this morning, you would leave. God purposely made me where I can't sing. And he told me, sing, and I will get you through this inspection. I'm like, next voice? Like, you want to rebuke the voice that you're hearing? <laughs> like you... <laughs> I mean, I've tried everything I knew. Like, I tried mercy praying. I've tried every kind of prayer I had ever got me out of it. Any ticket I was getting, you know, anything. God have mercy. Nothing was working. He said, sing. And it was because I wasn't going to get from here to there until I did what he said. And so I'm with all the leadership. And he even told me what song. It was a song I didn't know, of course. Why would he give you a song you wouldn't know? <laughs> Ivan Tate wrote this, Let the peace of God have preeminence. Let the peace of God reign in me. So not only am I singing, at least I could sing a song everyone knew so they could chime in and we'd sing together. No, I have to teach them the song. The sound of it and everything, we sounded horrible, but we were singing with all of our hearts. The little communist guy comes up, and we're so lost in singing, let the peace of God reign. Let the peace of God have preeminence. We're so caught in that moment that he has to interrupt us singing as he's bowing to us, telling us, They've had a problem at the train station, and there are too many trains that came through. And if it wouldn't be an inconvenience to us, could he please pass us through without inspection? And then he didn't understand why no one would answer him, because we were in shock. We couldn't make it register that he was asking as a favor that we wouldn't be inspected. Sing. It's like me sitting with this attorney, <laughs> and my dad was with me, and... um he had always been my favorite attorney because he would come to our national radio convention and he would open up his jacket and he would tell me, reach in my pocket inside of my jacket. I have a surprise for you. And I pulled it out and he had untangled our radio station legally for me and gave it to me. He said, it's a gift for you. $10,000. He had untangled it for me. And he said, I'm giving you a gift. My dad said, I love this relationship because we didn't even have the money that year. If I hadn't found flights for $250, dad said, sometimes when you don't have money, you've got to spend money. And we were trying to figure out what to do to keep from going under. He had put me in charge of the radio to run it for 30 days before it, the predictions came true. But you're failing. That's the start of the miracles. Reach your hand in my suit jacket pocket and pull out your surprise. I did. He gave it to me. Then he said, I have steak dinner. It's company money. Why don't y'all come to dinner with me? So I come to dinner with him. He's an attorney. You know how attorneys are. They're great because they have stories. Great stories. If you get to sit with lawyers, they're a lot of fun. They'll start telling you all their stories. You know, with lawyers, they start getting kind of off color, the jokes. I mean, he's rolling laughing about a friend of his who got cut in a skiing accident and he said the boat cut him and he was telling me straight up the middle and he was telling me all about that and he said oh the propeller just cut him and he said the greatest thing is he was with his girlfriend and he says they get to the ER and there's his wife too and oh I mean he was <laughs> so it was one of those kind of deals you know we were having a great time and uh, he's in his 50s and He's untangled my legal quagmire, and everything's grand, and life is wonderful, and God's given me favor, and we've got a stake, and the Lord tells me, ask him how much money he has in retirement. I had done him a favor, like immediately after he had untangled the radio station, I had a friend that was in TV, and 
if TV gets into legal problems, it's a couple more zeros and maybe another comma. So I had told him, I told this new friend of mine, I said, this is the best lawyer ever. Well, the reason he's the best lawyer ever, he's free. So I gave it to him to do. And he said, you made me $100,000 today. I said, no. I said, I'm blessed. And when you bless me, you'll get blessed. I have that on my life. I said, it's always worked that way. So I said, of course the Lord gave you an account because you were generous and kind. So here we are, steak dinners. We're laughing. The conversation is very colorful, very creative. And the Lord says, ask him how much he has in retirement savings. My dad went under the table. I have always enjoyed the fact that my dad has always put me under the table, but now dad just, he slid under the table. You can feel him kicking me. What are you doing? You know how attorneys are. He starts saying all this men's stuff. I didn't even know what he's talking about. 401, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and he's telling me all these layers. And my dad is just like, what is Angie questioning this for? And I thought, well, while he's talking, I'll let him talk for a bit. So he did. I said, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about your heavenly bank account. I said, I want meaning earth. How much do you have in heaven? (laughs) My dad crawls back up. (laughs) I began explaining all this to him. There are rewards in heaven. One month later, Katrina hits. He loses his yacht, and he loses his mind at 50 years of age. His mind just snapped. You know, since the day he had opened his jacket pocket, he had been helping me for years now, taking me for stakes every time. But here I present the gospel, and he's gone in his 50s. You talk about close timing. No wonder the Lord was saying to me, are you a fool for me? How much do you love me? Are you just going to enjoy your favor and not take it where I'm asking you to take it? And you know what's funny? The guy loved me more for telling him the truth. He liked me because I had boldness. I didn't treat him like anyone else. Like he was used to being treated a certain way. And I didn't see him in that light. I saw him in a light of a man that just didn't know the Lord. You know, the first thing that hit me after that was a new attorney came and uh, handed me a stack of bills and said, you owe our law company thousands and thousands of dollars. You know, the secretary took care of those bills, but I told her what he had told me of just wad them up, throw them in the trash. And when you throw them in the trash, he said, I won't ever charge you. I'm just doing it because the secretary needs to bill. Now the guy's saying, you owe all this money. Do you have an explanation for it? And I start trying to tell him the story. Do you think I felt like a fool? How can I explain that relationship? How does it not look like something crazy? I said, do you believe in God? He goes, well, yeah. And I said, well, it's going to be hard for me to explain this. And he said, it looks like to me you owe it. I said, the devil's trying to steal my miracle. (laughs) He said, this makes no sense. And so we waited a little bit of time, and I told him the story. And he sat there, and he was thinking, I don't think she could make this one up. And he said, that sure doesn't sound like how this guy thought or operated. It's unusual what you're telling me. He said, why don't you pay me $2,000 and we'll call it even. Now, this new attorney guy and I are that close of friends. I said, why did you believe me? He said, because I knew the guy wouldn't keep working for you if you weren't paying your bills. So he said, I knew there was something going on with this case. You were the only one like it. And he said, so it told me that there was some arrangement because he said, there's no way he would do the next thing for you if you weren't paying. I said, so you took my 2000 anyway? <laughs> he laughed. You know, I've heard of someone in the Old Testament called the weeping prophet. You know who the weeping prophet is? Jeremiah. My dad used to give prophecies, and he said, I-, I hate as a man to cry. I don't know what's wrong with my emotions that I cry. I'm a tough man. I go, I know you are dead. He would say the weeping prophet, but he would be uh, shocked at his adopted granddaughter to be the choking prophet. But the Bible doesn't have anything called the choking prophet. And that her prophecy, the man that God sent her to, she's choking. I've heard it. And he's trying to pray for her so that she'll quit choking so she continues to give him the word. His discernment's off, and he thinks she's choking because she's under a spirit. He doesn't realize (laughs) It wasn't religion that sent her to him. You know, it's one of those things that if God offered me a million dollars, there's things that I tell the Lord, if you offered me a million dollars, I wouldn't do it. 
you couldn't pay me to do this for you. But, you know, God has a special way of extracting things out of me that no amount of money offered to me could get me to do it. Not a million dollars would turn my head, and yet God's got it out of me. I know you know the feeling, because when God tells you to do it, you'll do what he tells you to do. And all these things have happened because of this verse. Last night I wrote story after story after story after story. And if you have an analytical mind, you're going to have to crucify your flesh and pride and tell the Lord, I'll be a fool for you. It's the analytical mind. And Paul was very analytical. That's why he penned this phrase in his letter. To really fall across, he had to become a fool for the sake of Christ. It's people with analytical minds, with analytical jobs, <laughs> with analytical people around them. It's a hard time. You think, well, the clowns don't have to worry about it. They're not respectable anyway. But not if you're a thinking person. Has God ever called upon you to do something the world would consider foolish? To the world, Paul said, we look like fools. But you know, I was going to tell you something unusual that took place to close this lordship level of fool for Christ. Funniest thing happened to me when I told the Lord, I won't be a fool for myself anymore. I'll be a fool for you divine favor fell on my life and I went from having one or two or three good friends to having scores of friends my senior year favor got on me the bolder I got the more that people wanted a piece of the action I mean my senior year my college years my cram my four years into five I mean it was like literally everywhere on campus I was known and then I get friends that were a hair crazier than me and that always livened it up. And I thought, isn't it funny? It's really true. What you seek to save, you lose. And what you lose for his sake is the very thing that will cause you to be everything you were born to be. And you'll say it's all worth it for him. It's all worth it for what I've seen. It's so worth it. So as April the 1st is here upon us, I'm going to challenge you. I want you to think about purposely doing what I challenged you to do, and that's to sell out to God in this area. That you tell God, I'm going to push this box off. <laughs> and no more am I going to be a fool for myself. I'm going to choose you, Lord, and do with it what you may, Lord. You know I'm easy to embarrass, but it's worth it to me. I love you that much. If that's what it takes, I'll be a fool for you. Amen.